So please take your Bibles this morning, your devices, your handouts if you'd like. You can turn them over. The passage is on the back. But please turn to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue in our journey through Philippians. In brief review this morning, I will just mention, especially for those visiting with us, that we have uh, been thrilled to walk through the book of Philippians. Uh, We are midway through chapter 2. So far in this book, this journey through the book of Philippians, we have been graciously exhorted, graciously confronted with two primary themes. These two primary themes are this, the gospel of Jesus Christ should impact every area of our life. This is what we've titled a gospel-centered life. Then from that flows another application, and here's the theme that we've been looking at, From the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, here's the theme. That unity in the body of Christ comes through, what's the word? Let's try that one more time. Unity in the body of Christ comes through humility. We've seen the exhortation to humility. We've seen the beautiful example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we find unpacked the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for us and the exhortation that says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Embrace the humility that we see so clearly in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, lest for whatever reason we take our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and sort of placed him down a couple notches in our mind because of the incarnation, because of his death, because of his burial, because of the resurrection, we find more to the story. We looked at this last week. Jesus Christ is an example, but oh, brothers and sisters, he's so much more than an example. We found this last week. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, verse 9, verse 10 now, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of this to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, but that passage has been ringing in my mind all week long. The superiority, the supremacy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being King of kings and Lord of lords. Now today, we enter into a very practical study based on what we just talked about. Very practical application in this discussion, remember, we want to go to the context. So within context, the, the discussion is unity through humility. But we, then we find these two beautiful verses in the middle of chapter 2 that we're going to just kind of unpack here within context today. We're going to be talking about this. Humility is the main discussion, but the primary application today is dependent effort. What does that look like? What does this look like in the life of a believer, this effort? Well, we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning after I spend a brief couple moments talking about some practical areas in life. If you haven't noticed, what we'd like to do on Sunday morning is talk about practical areas in life that will help us relate to the passage. Well, if you haven't picked up on this already, I absolutely love athletics. I love athletics because it does a couple things. 
Uh, it reveals character and it helps to build character. Both of those things happen at the same time when you're squeezed on the sports field. When something happens to you, your character is going to be revealed. Not only revealed, but also it's going to be built when you fail sometimes. Character is revealed and character is built. However, you'll notice in every one of these pictures there's a, a key theme. That is the support of parents. I, I love this. Um, as a parent of kids involved in athletics, I love the concept of very supportive parents, encouraging parents. But I'm going to tell you, I'm just, we're just going to be out front here. Um, as much as I love it, I also, I mean, I'm watching the field happen, watching the court happen, watching the mat happen, the wrestling mat happen. I love watching what's happening on the court, the field, the mat, but I also love just watching all the parents. You ever done this? You ever taken time to watch what's happening around the field? It's beautiful. These parents, like myself, get into it. There's times in the match where I am sweating and I'm not even playing. You know what I'm talking about. Um, a couple weeks ago, we were watching a soccer ma- match, and it was thrilling. It was awesome, because I noticed one particular mom on the side, uh, she came straight from work, professional businesswoman looking, and uh, skirt, I think even heels maybe, and she was like pacing the sideline on the soccer field. She couldn't stay still. I mean, I can sympathize exactly, but she would walk, and you would watch her uh, as she, I was trying to watch the game. I didn't want to have my eyes focused on this woman, but any, anyway, I'm watching her, and I just couldn't stop, but I kept trying not to laugh, because when the ball would be kicked in her heels or skirt, everything, she's trying to kick. When the, her son was playing defense, and when her son was on defense, she's like moving up the field and then moving back so she wouldn't be off, so the team wouldn't be off sides. She was engaged, and every once in a while she would catch herself and be like, "Oh, you know what I'm talking about." Um, wrestling was a big part of my life. One of the best wrestlers I ever wrestled with was a guy named Dale King. He was a weight class ahead of me. And he was awesome. He was a, a two-time state champion in the state of Colorado. As a freshman, he was third place. And then as a senior, I believe, he was uh, second place. So he placed in the top four every year of his high school career. He was an amazing wrestler. But even more than him wrestling, this dude Dale had a dad that was intense. He was a great guy. But he couldn't stay in the bleachers. Maybe you're that parent. This guy, we would watch, we'd be all lined up cheering on Dale, and every once in a while I'd look over there and just have to laugh my heart out. Because this guy was on the side of the bleachers, he'd tuck himself away, and every time a shot would happen, he would explode with a sprawl. Like, he'd be jumping all over the place. Anytime his son Dale would do a throw, he'd be throwing the bleachers. Anytime, it was great, anytime Dale would, uh, would escape out from underneath, his dad would escape. He was moving all over the side of the bleachers, and everybody in the bleachers couldn't watch it because he was to the side. But the team, we could. Get to the end of the match, this dude over here, this midlife dude, I mean, he's in his mid-50s, 60s at this time, great guy. He's sweating. He's supporting his kid. This is what I love about athletics. I love about athletics. By the way, there's a purpose to these stories, so just hold on a minute. 
I love about athletics, sitting back, not just watching parents, but listening to them. Have you ever done this? One of my favorites in soccer, and I've done this as well, is when the kiddos are out there running around, especially the young ones, not a single parent can help him or herself from yelling two words. Kick it! Have you ever thought about that? A kid out there running around, what else is he going to do with it, right? Oh, I mean, maybe little Johnny's sitting out there running around with the ball. He's like, oh yeah, that's right, I'm supposed to kick it. I knew I was in this sport for a reason. It's same as baseball. I love it. The parents in the, you know, watching the baseball, the kid comes out of the dugout, it's his turn, and what do they yell? Well, hit it this time, buddy. What else is he going to do with it? Eat it? You know? They're not going to put it in his back pocket and run. I mean, we yell the most obvious things in wrestling to listen as the kid is put on his back, fighting off his back. The parents are yelling, get off your back! He's not going to... He's not there just because he loves looking at the rafters, you know? He's not there because he needs a little nap. It's almost like he's sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, I knew I was supposed to do something. Get off my back. Uh, Anyways, it's endless to think about what parents yell, the support they yell during the games, during the matches. My parents were amazing supporters. Uh, two things would happen. My, my dad would come to my wrestling matches and my soccer games, but particularly in my wrestling matches, and we would talk, we'd pray before my matches, and then I could, I tell you what, anywhere in the arena, even during the state championships with thousands of people surrounding the mats, all 10 mats, I could pick out my dad and I look for a couple things. His nod, his nod of approval. Before the game, Andrew, you got this, man. And then if I'm on my back and I'm fighting off my back or I missed a move and I'm struggling through overtime, overtime's the worst in wrestling and I'm about to enter into overtime, guess where I would look? Yeah, I'd see my coach, but guess who else I'd see? I'd look over to see my dad. You got this, Andrew. He didn't have to say a word. On the other hand, my mom. (laughs) You know where this is going. In an arena, even with thousands of people at the state tournament, I'm going to tell you, I don't know how her voice got so loud. This shrill voice was awesome. Andrew! She couldn't hold still and she couldn't keep her voice down. I mean, it was awesome because I could look over and know exactly where my dad is and at any time during the match I could listen and no matter what was happening, even with hundreds of thousands of, or, or thousands of people around, I knew exactly where my mom is because I could hear her. So what's the point in all that? Parents are amazing supports in the athletic fields, on the court. Some of them take it overboard. But usually what happens with parents, like the ones on the screen today, there's an amazing support network as parents encourage their athletes to keep going. You can do this. I want us to enter into the text today with that in mind. This pep talk, this pep talk from the Apostle Paul. Think of it as if Paul is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gathering this church around and saying, all right, we've just talked about some intense stuff. Humility. One of the hardest things you're ever gonna do in your life is prefer someone else before yourself. Then we recognize our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the response when we hear of the humility of Jesus Christ, our response is like, 
I can never do that. Have you, have you struggled with that thought through the passage? Oh, that's noble, Paul, but me? Really? You don't know my coworkers. You don't know my family, Paul. You don't know my kids. You don't know my wife or my husband. How can I do that? And in this passage, it's almost like the Apostle Paul is gathering the church around and saying, hey, I've been with you sometimes, but I'm also absent, but I want you to know, don't quit. Keep going. Put effort into your spiritual walk. When you fail, get back up. It's almost like Paul's the one sitting over there on the sideline with the nod saying, hey, you got this. Can we see that in the text? Look with me at verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is Paul doing in this passage today? In no uncertain terms, he is heralding this thought. The Christian life takes effort. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it takes getting out of bed in the morning with a resolve to live for Jesus. The Christian life takes an effort to say no when I need to say no and to say yes when I need to say yes. That's the Christian life. It takes effort. So let's unpack this pep talk a little bit from Paul. Noticing is that main point is on your page there. Christian life requires effort. Let's see where we can go with this because by the way, I'm gonna tell you, there's some massive theological struggles and interpretations from some who have read this passage and have missed the point. So we want to get to the point today. Initially, when you read this passage, you think that the Christian life may be all about me and my work. Well, there's more to the story, and it's called verse 13. But before we get to verse 13, let's go ahead and study verse 12. Christian living requires an effort. So what we want to do this morning is just go straight through the passage, take one verse or one phrase, one word at a time, and just unpack it as we go, starting with this first word, therefore. We had the same word last week, didn't we? When you see the word therefore, you want to see what's preceding it. So what is happening right before this? Remember, we just laid this contextual foundation. What is happening just prior to this? Paul is saying, unity comes through humility, and yes, Jesus Christ humbled himself. However, Jesus Christ is an example, but he's so much more than an example. He's exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because of all of that, there's something I want to say. Therefore, Paul goes on and says, my beloved. I want to tell you, I absolutely love that. Through the Spirit, Paul writes to these people, and he calls them dearly loved friends. Some of your translations will actually say that. Loved friends. Loved, the concept is loved friends, even to a certain sense, like John calls his friends children. My dearly loved friends. In my mind, that's, that, that holds a lot of weight. Why? 
sometimes when exhortation needs to happen in the body, some of us are inclined to just say it like it is. <laughs> are you like that? You just come down and got to just, boom, get it out there and say it. If you're offended, deal with it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Well, I think we have here a pattern that Paul actually brings up in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 15. What does he say? Speaking the truth in love. Paul is proving that. There's a pattern through the New Testament epistles with Paul when he wants to come down with a strong exhortation. A lot of times he, he, he introduces this exhortation with this concept. My beloved, I love you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's so important in the body of Christ here that when we exhort each other, it's not out of pride. It's, it's not out of arrogancy or anger. It's out of a heart of love for each other. And Paul says, therefore, my beloved, work out. Okay, so in these two verses, what we want to do when we study the scriptures a lot of times is find the primary command. It's known as an imperative. We've talked of this. This is the primary command in all of these two verses, in both of these verses. Work out. So what does this mean? If it's the primary command, we want to kind of figure out what it, what it means. Work out, Paul says, therefore, my beloved. Then he says a bunch of other words, but the primary command is this. Work out. Work to achieve something. And here's, all, here's what's awesome about this. Work to bring something down to its right conclusion or completion. In a very practical illustration, there's a bunch of Grand Prix cars back there. Guess what happened this week? All right. There were a lot of dads that about cut their fingers off. <laughs> I mean, putting those cars together and chiseling them out. I mean, we put some cars together. Uh, David and Eva's dad is not a major carpenter that has detail. I love doing carpentry work, but detail like that. So we're watching this, and David's like, how do we get this thing faster? We're watching YouTubes on how to get this thing faster. And we got these things perfect weight, I thought. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, dear. Put them on the scale, and we're like 0.15 over. It's like, okay, we'll just drill some holes in the bottom. I'm telling you, before we got to the end of that thing, top of that car, all the paint that we spent time was all smudged. And all of the bottom was hollow because I had to take a chisel and chisel the whole bottom off the car. It was despicable. We looked at this car and David's like, yeah. Well, here's what I had to do. We had to work it down to the right conclusion. What was the right conclusion? It had to be five ounces. Don't be more than five ounces. We had to whittle it down to that five ounces. I'm going to tell you, that's the concept here of this word work out. Whittle down your salvation to its right conclusion. And sometimes it's ugly and sometimes it hurts. But we work at it. We put effort just like a stone is sculpted away to present a beautiful figure. That's what God's doing in our lives. Work yourself down. Work your salvation down to its proper conclusion. Work it down to its right completion. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. My brothers, work out, and what does he say? Work out your own salvation. This is where theologically this passage is easily derailed. Paul in no way, and I just want to be 
clear on this. No uncertain terms. This is not talking about working your way to a right standing before God. What is known as justification. Okay, if, if, you have question, if we have questions about that, one of the primary rules of interpretation is compare Scripture with Scripture. Undeniably, through the Scriptures, we find that salvation is by grace through faith. So that is not what this means, is work hard so that God will let you into heaven. That is not this passage. This is already a salvation that has been, in some aspects, enjoyed it is a salvation that comes by grace through faith in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul says, work down this salvation. Work it to its right conclusion and its right completion. Um, so much comes to mind, but if we could just think in our minds about what salvation looks like in the New Testament. And you've heard this before. Salvation in the New Testament comes in three basic tenses. The past tense is what we know as being personally saved from the penalty of sin. This is what's known as positional salvation, where we come to Jesus Christ in justification. We call on him to save our souls. It's positional salvation, where when now God sees us, he doesn't just see us, he sees us wrapped with the robes of Christ's righteousness. He sees Jesus Christ. That is positional salvation, positional justification. However, it doesn't stop there, does it? Positional justification leads to what's known as a progressive sanctification, where this positional justification saves us from the penalty of sin. This progressive sanctification is where God is saving us from the power of sin. You've heard these things. Every day of our lives, God is rescuing us from the power of that sin that likes to weasel its way into our lives and take over control, the temptations. But where does that all lead? Positional, secure justification, practical, progressive sanctification leads to, brothers and sisters in Christ, the day when Jesus will set it all right. This is known as permanent glorification. When we not only have been saved from the penalty of sin, not only been saved and are being saved from the presence and power, or from the power of sin, someday, brothers and sisters, we will be saved from the actual presence of sin. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sin. There will be no more temptations. I'm telling you what, I cannot wait for that day. But where does this passage fall? It falls right in the middle. <laughs> this progressive, this daily battle with sin. And what does Paul say? Work out your own salvation. Work this salvation in a progressive, obedient way every day of your life. Every morning you get up, work down your salvation to the right conclusion. Whittle it away to the right weight. Get it to the place it should be. That's the passage. Paul's saying, put effort into your spiritual lives. He says this, work out your own salvation. And by the way, I love this because he says, work out your own salvation. When we read this passage sometimes, we're tempted to think, oh yeah, that person sitting on the far corner over there or over there, they really could use this unity through humility talk. <laughs> 
they, they could really use this uh, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That person over there really needs this. And what's Paul saying? Hey, 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 work out your own salvation. Yes, accountability is needed in the body of Christ, but work down your own salvation. It's a very personal relationship with a holy God, and we see that further developed. This Christian life, it requires effort. Now, he further unpacks that. He further, further um, defines that through the text. We're not going to take a ton of time on these things, but I want us to see very clearly this effort, what it looks like. This effort that we are to put into our lives this week, what does it look, look like according to this passage? Well, first of all, this is effort that is sustained by faithful character. What do I mean? If you'd look with me at the first phrase here, as you have always obeyed, verse 12, I'm in reading in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence. What's Paul saying here? And by the way, what is character? I try to teach my character, uh, my kids that character is doing what is right even when no one's around. That's why I reference it as character. What's Paul saying? Put effort into your spiritual life even if I'm not there. Very clearly at the end of chapter 1, he's already told them that, that death is in the picture. He's not going to be with them much longer. And what's Paul saying? Hey, you've obeyed when I'm around and when you have my letters and what now Paul is saying, but guess what? If I'm not here, will you still obey? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is so appropriate. And I, I mean, we can say a lot about this, but the simple point is this. What, what is the impetus? What is the drive, the motivation for your effort? We know accountability in the body of Christ is a massive thing. But what's the primary motivation for your sanctification? Is it the people sitting around you? Is it my mom and dad that might give me a phone call? That might check on this? Is my primary motivation that someone might look at my browsing history? Someone might call me out on the carpet for something I said? Is, is our primary motivation that it always has to be someone watching over me? Or is my primary motivation what we see clearly in this next stage of the passage that God Almighty is watching me? Even if no one's around, I'm going to put effort in my spiritual walk. Even if no one can say, hey, are you supposed to do that? I'm still going to do what's right. This effort is sustained by character, faithful character. Let's move on. This is also effort that is motivated by a reverential awe of God. This goes hand in hand with what we just saw. It's not just simply motivated by who's standing over there looking over your shoulder, like the teacher in the classroom that's walking around during the test trying to see if anybody's cheating. What's the primary motivation? What Paul says in here, and I love this, if you look with me, work out, at verse 12, Work out your salvation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. And now we have this amazing term with fear and trembling. Okay, here's another very good possibility for theological derailment. <laughs> All right, this passage says that we are to have a fear and a trembling to God. What does that mean? I want us to first notice this is sort of like a stock phrase. 
used 13 times, okay. In the Old Testament, written in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's also translated into the Greek, and that's known as the Septuagint. 13 times we find this in the Septuagint, this phrase. It's one of those stock phrases. Love God with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Fear and trembling. Very clearly, we want to find and, and understand that this is reverence and awe. This is the reverence and awe of one who has been securely brought into union with God through Christ. Please understand that this is reverence and awe, not horror and anxiety. We, we need to remember that in our mind. This fear, this trembling is reverence and awe, not horror and anxiety. And another way of thinking of it is this way. This reference, this fear and trembling, it's a bowing respect, not a sulking fear. Do you see the difference? It's a bowing respect to a holy God, not a sulking, uh, sulking fright that I'm going to be taken out. And what does Paul say? Work out your own salvation with a reverence and an awe to a holy God. What's the practical application, brothers and sisters in Christ? He has just said, don't base your sanctification on me being there. What are you to base your sanctification on? The presence of God with you. I mean, your mind, our minds could go to any number of passages that says that God sees everything. Our God beholds everything, the evil and the good. That we have an almighty God that we cannot hide from. This week in discussion with my kids a little bit, we talked of Jonah. I mean, I, I don't know about you. Um, there's a lot that can be said about Jonah. But I'm, but I'm just going to say, and I, I'm not the brightest guy sometimes when it comes to areas of rebellion in my life, but this guy rebelling against a God that sees everything goes to the water and ha- tries to hide in the water. I mean, I got a phobia of sharks and things like that. That's not where I'm going to go to hide from God. And he thought somehow he can hide from God. God sees him. God sees everything. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot hide from a holy God. And because of that, every day of our life, we're driven not by what elders looking over my shoulder, but what God thinks of what I'm doing. Paul says, work down your salvation to its right conclusion and do this with a reverential awe of a holy God. God sees everything we are doing. Let's keep moving through the text. This effort, not only is it sustained by faithful character, not only is it motivated by a reverential awe of God, but very clearly now we come to another aspect of this text. Um, and lest we think that this sanctification is totally about my discipline and determination, Paul gives us verse 13. I love it. Because if you're working through the passage here, it's all about, yeah, grit, resolve. As we've talked about in the past, get it done. I've got this. And Paul says, lest you think it's all about you, lest I think it's all about me, We have verse 13. And what does verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, this is amazing. 
What's the point that he makes here? It is God who works in you. Yes, we put divine effort into our daily walk. Yes, we get out of bed determined to live for the king. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It actually doesn't start there, does it? It starts with the inner working of a God that is shaping our lives. That's what this passage says. It is God who works in you. By the way, this word work is the same root found in verse 12. It's just working down to its right conclusion. As we are working down our salvation to the right conclusion, guess who's doing the same thing in our lives? It's God. God is convicting us. As we open the scriptures, God's Holy Spirit is the one that's saying, yep, see, don't do that. <laughs> yep, see that? Do that. Yep, see what worship me and the beauty of my holiness. That's what the holy, holiness of God is doing within us. The point of this passage is God is doing something. <laughs> I love it. So work out your salvation to the right conclusion, but as you're working it down to its right conclusion, realize it's not all dependent on you. It's dependent on God doing the work in you. Here's the point. God's doing something. God is putting effort into your sanctification process. God is enabling you. God is making you grow. By the way, this is what we refer to when we talk of sustaining grace. God is doing it in our lives. In this phrase, we find what's known as a present active verb. It's an indicative uh, that God is doing something, followed up by a present active participle. What's the point? No need to go into all the grammar of it. But here's the point. It's present and it's active. It's happening. God is doing it in your life right now. If you've come to Jesus Christ by faith, God right now is active in your life, growing you. God is working in your life. Here's the point. Back to chapter 1, verse 6. But he, and Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. That's the chapter we just looked at. God is doing the work in our life. Praise him. The point is this. As a common theme in the New Testament, the imperatives, the commands, are built on something. This is beautiful. Hopefully we'll reference this often. The commands in the New Testament are built on a foundation of what's known as the indicatives. You're like, what does that mean? Something said about you. And what is that something that's been said about you? that you are God's. He has you. You are his. You have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have been infused in Jesus Christ, and you have been chosen by an almighty sovereign God. That is the indicative. Now, based on that, what's the imperative? Work out your salvation today. That's this passage. Let's keep working through the passage. Paul says, it is God who works in you. I'll fly through this. This is not just move, moving on us. A lot of times you hear people praying, Lord, Spirit, move on us. This is not a moving on us like a game piece where you kind of move things around. This is in us. This is moving, in, uh, moving us through His Spirit that prompts us for an obedient response to the Word. God's Spirit is working in our hearts. He says this, both to will and to work. What does that mean? You know what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in our lives? That will. God is moving on our very desires for our day. The Holy Spirit of God 
is influencing our desires for that day. The will and doing. God's Spirit is moving on our desires to obey Him, impassioning us to, to give our lives to Him that day, and then empowering us to do that work. Paul says, I'm sure of this. Actually, he says, both to will and to work. And then this phrase, um, that sometimes we keep it an arm's distance, but it is something to be embraced fully by both arms. Here's the phrase. For his good pleasure. This is the prerogative of a holy creator and sustainer of all life. To dynamically move in the affairs of man according to his sovereign pleasure and plan. Uh, many times I sit there and I try to figure this out. I'm going to tell you, my brain feels like it's going to blow up. We have finite minds that are not going to completely understand the ways of an infinite creator. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to tell you, it's taught in Scripture, so I better embrace it. I better not keep it at arm's length. I better embrace it fully. That there's a God that's doing things according to his good pleasure. I love this song. We've sung this before here. Actually, I think we sung, sung last month. You are God alone from before time began. You are on your throne. You are God alone. And right now, in the good times and bad, you are, you are on your throne. You are God alone. Unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. That's what you are. You're the only God whose power none can contend. You're the only God whose name and praise will never end. You're the only God who's worthy of everything we can give. And then I love this phrase. You are God, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> Sometimes I'm singing that and I'm like, well, that's kind of a weird poetic end to this chorus. But it's beautiful. You are God and it's just the way it is. I'm not God. So when we look at this, and a lot of times, God's pleasure and our pleasure don't meet up. God doing things that we want him to do doesn't always happen. But that's why Paul assures us, work it down to your own conclusion and trust in a God who's going to do things according to his good pleasure. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12 is still in the scriptures, and we have to trust it. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who, first, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, there's a lot in that passage. Primarily this, God's good pleasure and his good glory go hand in hand. He is going to do whatever it takes to receive the glory and the splendor. That is God, and that's just the way it is. We trust it. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The synchronization of God's glory working in my life by his grace. Paul says this, but by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace was bestowed on me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. <laughs> Although it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is a testimony that we should all embrace. That by the grace of God we are what I, we are, but because of his grace we're going to work harder. We're going to put effort into our spiritual lives. Um, I'm going to conclude this. There's, there's some other very appropriate uh, statements at the bottom of your page there, and I'll just reference them, but I'm going to leave this possibly for small group gatherings. Here's, I'll just reference them. What does this naturally propose in our lives, presuppose in our lives? It, 
It presupposes, what Paul is saying here presupposes the work of the Trinity. What do I mean? The sovereignty of God to work his glorious plan. Undeniable through, through the scriptures. Ephesians 2.10, after we just realized that it's by grace we are saved through faith. What does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work. Not only that, it presupposes the sufficiency of Christ to provide union with God. I mean, this verse is packed. Not only that, but it presupposes that the Spirit of God is in our lives and dwelling in us right now. If we come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, the Spirit of God has you and will never let you go. We've said this several times. That Spirit's not going to leak out the bottom of your shoe. He's got you. He'll never let you go. Couple passages to meditate on this week Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Think on the beautiful working of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, both to will and to do. The Spirit of God is working in our lives, transforming our desires, transforming our actions. So, what? Actually, key idea. <laughs> Summarize this down to one sentence as we close out. One statement. I would think it would be something like this. God's people must be committed to dependent effort. This week, it's going to take effort. This week, disobedience in our homes, it's going to take effort. At our workplaces, it's going to take effort. Brothers in Christ in this room, it's going to take effort to be faithful to our wives and family. Sisters in Christ, it's going to take effort to not say what we think sometimes. It's going to take effort to get up in the morning and soak in the precious word. It's going to take effort in our lives to walk in the Spirit. There's this beautiful working of the Spirit in our lives, but there are also imperatives that we obey. God's people must be committed to effort. But to kind of bring that phrase within context, we'd have to say something like this. In order to live a gospel-centered life of unity and humility, that's the context, in order for unity through humility to work, God's people must be committed to dependent effort. Brothers and sisters in Christ, unity in the body of Christ, guess what? It doesn't just happen because we come. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes yeses and it takes noes. So what? A couple quick questions. This question, I think, has been on my mind this week. Am I putting maximum effort into my relationship with God? Couldn't you ask yourself that same question? At home, at school, young people, at school, are you putting maximum effort into your relationship with God? All of us in our lives, no matter where we're at this week, at home, on the workforce, at school, in the community, on the sports team, are we committed to effort and faithfulness and service and purity and discipleship? I love what a fellow by the name of C.T. Studd says in a poem. You know this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Another question would be this. Does my effort reveal a complete dependence on God? So yes, I'm putting effort. But does it reveal that I'm completely dependent on God? So how does that work? I'm going to tell you, as we walk, and Paul uses the analogy of walking, every step of my day is saturated with talking with God as a loving father. 
it's saturated with loving his word as he works his word in my life and obeying his word. That's what it means to be dependent on God, to be dependent on the word, to be dependent on him through prayer. Talking with some of you this week, the crazy life that you live, that we live, the struggles of going to work on Monday morning, walking with God in these things. Dependent effort, dependent effort. This week I was overwhelmed, I'll close with this. I was overwhelmed with the effort and trust of some of the great heroes of faith in the founding of America. It's no, you know, not something to hide that I love history. We've talked about, I love American history. Absolutely love it. I love talking about the godly men that functioned in the founding of our country, particularly those pastors and missionaries that gave their lives for Jesus Christ. Any of you heard of a man by the name of David Brainerd? Any of you heard of him? This is a man who gave his life. As a 29-year-old, he died. Things didn't go the way he thought they should and the way the schooling wanted to. He took a stand for Christ in the school he was at. They expelled him. In that place he lived, you needed the backing of that school to be a formal pastor. He said, okay, guess God wants me to go be a missionary to the Indians. He took his life. For seven years of his life, he lived with, missionary, uh, with, with Indians, American Indians, traveled from one tribe to another, sharing Jesus with these Indians. As a young man devoted to Jesus Christ, he um, contracted tuberculosis. At the time, they didn't know quite how to deal with this. This man who was in constant pain, he would cough and spit up blood. But with every cough, he would hold it back enough to say words of Jesus. A lot is known of this man because of what was written by another man. Any of you heard of a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest pastors of that era, a theologian, an author. Not many know that David Brainerd breathed his last breath in the house of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, who six years prior to this preached a sermon, still known in the history literature books to this day, sinners in the hands of an angry God, promoting a reverential awe to a holy God. Jonathan Edwards preaching this sermon, six years later, being forced to trust this God. Jonathan Edwards putting his effort into his ministry, his young friend in the faith, David Brainerd coming to his house, dying in his very house. But that's not the rest of the story. Jonathan Edwards, this faithful preacher, had a 17-year-old daughter who was so committed to Jesus Christ, so committed to the work of missions that she cared for David Brainerd. David Brainerd died as the 17-year-old daughter of Jonathan Edwards watched her pa him pass into eternity. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, 17-year-old, caring for David Brainerd, also contracted tuberculosis, and five months later, she was buried next to David Brainerd. So you have a man preaching with all of his heart, and actually he read the script as we see Jonathan Edwards. He is so committed to God, so committed to the fact that God is doing things after his good pleasure. This man now is burying his good friend, David Brainerd, his young friend in the faith, as a 29-year-old, buried next to a 17-year-old daughter. And now Jonathan Edwards is forced 
to put his trust in God to practice, that it is God who is working in him, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. You know what Jonathan Edwards did? He decided to write a book on the life of David Brainerd. You know what happened? Thousands and hundreds of thousands of young students became motivated for the mission field because of the life and death of David Brainerd. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has this amazing plan. Maybe it involves the death of a 29-year-old. Maybe it involves the death of a 17-year-old. That doesn't make sense to us, but God is working his amazing plan. So what is our response? According to this passage, therefore, my beloved, work your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure.